Welcome to Bibliography, a podcast for people who love a good to-be-read list. I'm David Kern here at Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina, and this is a conversation show about the way books make our lives richer. This week's guest is Alyssa Wilkinson. Alyssa is a senior culture reporter and critic at Vox.com, where she writes about film, TV, and culture, often where they intersect with media, religion, and rhetoric. She's also an associate professor of English and humanities at the King's College in New York City, where since 2009 she has taught courses on criticism, cinema studies literature, and cultural theory. She's a member of the New York Film Critics Circle, the National Society of Film Critics, and was an inaugural writing fellow with the Sundance Institute's Art of Nonfiction Initiative. She has served on juries at multiple film festivals and is also co-founder of Young Adult Movie Ministry, a mildly irreverent podcast about Christianity and pop culture, especially movies. But this week, she is on the show to talk about books. Her first book, How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, and Politics at the End of the World, was co-written with Robert Joustra and published by Erdman's in May 2016. And I might add, is really, really good. Really enjoyed that book. Her second book, Salty, Lessons on Eating, Drinking, and Living from Revolutionary Women, is out this week from Broadleaf Books. You know that classic question, if you could have a dinner party with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Well, Salty is Alyssa's fascinating and perhaps a tad unconventional answer to that question. In this book, she has gathered a hypothetical table of eight women who challenged norms and defied conventional wisdom. Those women are Ella Baker, Alice Toklas, Hannah Arendt, Octavia Butler, Agnes Varda, Elizabeth David, Edna Lewis, Maya Angelou, and Laurie Colwyn. And in Salty, Wilkinson explores the ways food, in particular, managed to root these women in their various callings. As the book jacket describes, quote, for some, it was cultivating perseverance in the face of hardship. For others, it was nurturing a freedom to act, even in the face of opposition, toward justice and equality. For others, it was an examination of what it means to be human with all its desire, heartbreak, sacrifice, isolation, and liberty. Salty is Alyssa Wilkinson's invitation to you. Join these sharp, empowered, and often subversive women and discover how to live with courage, agency, grace, smarts, snark, saltiness, and sometimes feasting, even in uncertain times. End quote. It's a really interesting conceit for a book, and it's a great book for anyone who wants to add more books to their to-be-read list, which that's kind of the point of this podcast. So this week, I chatted with Alyssa about some of her favorite books, including her must-read examples of food writing and the books she was reading when preparing for Salty. Without further ado, here is that conversation. I hope you find a book or two to love. Thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me. It's It's been a while. It has been a while. I'm so glad that that this was a good occasion for it. I feel like, you know, anytime you have a new book out, we need to fire up Zoom and chat about it for a little yeah, bit. <laughs> well, that's that's a, like a once every two to five years. So you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're here to talk about books. And the question I like to ask everybody is, this is kind of like my entryway into all these conversations. Because it's one of the things I'm most curious about when pe- with people who love, who love books. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time you fell in love with a book? Ooh, um, I started reading really, really, really young. Um, mm-hmm. Like I kind of, it was four when I started kindergarten and I was like one of the first kids in the class to learn to read. I was clearly very ready. Um, <laughs> so what I remember from the time was that I was really into, you know, whatever books you give a kindergartner in 1988. But um but in the first grade, I'm pretty sure I was put onto the Little House on the Prairie books. Mm-hmm. And that was like 
you know, that was incredible. Like here are like changed, your mind. changed very, the world. <laughs> yeah. The story's very long. Um, yeah, I can yeah, read yeah. it at my own speed. I've always been like a very fast reader, so I can read it at my own speed. I don't have to like wait for the teacher to read it to mm-hmm. the kids or for mm-hmm. my parents to read it to me. So it was little house on the prairie. And then right after that, um, or maybe even it might've been concurrent with that, um, timeline's a little fuzzy that long ago, but, um, my, my aunt, um, my mom's sister, who is, who is a big reader and is sort of the big reader in the family started giving me, um, one of the Ramona books, um, the Beverly Cleary and this kind of expanded to the the whole Beverly Cleary universe, but she would give me one every holiday. So I would get one for my birthday. I would get Mm -hmm. one for Christmas. There was probably another holiday in there that I ended up getting one for. And so I, very clearly remember reading those books. And one of them is named Ramona Quimby, age eight. I remember that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I must've started reading them very young because I remember like thinking, oh, like someday I'll be eight too. (laughs) And I'll be the same age as Ramona and then I'll be a big kid. So I probably started reading them super early. And those were, I loved them so much. I probably read them a billion times. Um, And, you know, there's funny things in those books that don't really make sense to a kid in the early 90s like i remember oh yeah <laughs> be, be, beatrice wanting the dorothy hamill haircut and that like flips when she does a, a spin on the ice and i had no idea what they were talking about but it stuck with me into adulthood when i finally found out who dorothy hamill was <laughs> it's funny how you can read like uh the beverly cleary books and those things don't make sense but then you can read um the little house in the prairie and you just yes y- y- that stuff that makes even less sense but it's just you know, yes, you just accept it. Kids just accept it. Yes, exactly. And, and you sort of just assume that this is just one of those many, many, many things that everybody knows that you don't. Yet. No, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah you'll, you'll understand it when you get cool. Mm-hmm, exactly. Like when you're eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, uh, Cleary books are, they show up so often when I ask this question to people, yeah. in fact, I, the last episode that we ran before we recorded this was an interview I did a while back with Chris Beha, who's the editor at Harper's, mm-hmm. and then he wrote the Index of Self-Destructive Acts, and he mentioned yeah. the Beverly Cleary books as well. Mm-hmm. The um, the one with the, uh, Henry, yep, uh, Henry, Henry and was that Henry and, Henry and Beezus, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So th- they show up so often. And what do you think it is about Clear? Beverly Cleary's writing yeah. that people, I mean, it's not just that you liked them when you were a kid, but you remember it. Yes. You know, Oh, a like year crystal later. clear. Yeah. I don't like, I don't really retain a lot of stuff and those I really retained. I, mm. I thought about this cause she died in the last year or two. Yeah. Yeah. Fairly recently. I know it was mm-hmm. during the pandemic. She was very, mm-hmm. very, very old, uh, like over a mm-hmm. hundred, I think. And, um, so a lot of people were writing about it. So I was thinking about it too. And I think like one of it is, one of the things is that she took children's emotions really seriously. Like there's mm. no, uh, there's, it's a very accurate description of the things you feel when you're a kid, whether it's mm. like frustration at your parents and kind of reading between the lines. It's like, I don't know. I remember Ramona's father gets laid off and it's the recession and they don't mm. have very much money. And she's just like angry about stuff. Um, and as an adult, you look at it and you're like, okay, well, Ramona has like a lot of, she's like anxious and scared and she gets angry at things that aren't really worth getting angry at, but it's because she's a kid and she doesn't know where else yeah. to put her emotions. But yeah. um, as a kid, you don't know that. And when you read them as a kid, there's no like, 
there's no like lesson there. <laughs> it's yeah. not like a yeah. moral morality tale. It's just like, yep, your emotions are valid. It's not a judgment on. No, not at all. And it's feel, not yeah. trying to teach kids how to deal with their emotions. And that's a whole hmm. thing that's good to do, uh, you know, but there's none of that, like, you know, even kind of Pixar's thing is to validate children's emotions, but also like obviously help them to manage them differently. And there's, that's yeah. just not on her radar. Um, mm. and they're super imaginative because, you know, on the one hand you have the realism of Ramona and the whole Quimby family. And like, that's very real. Like dad loses his job. It's scary. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, you know, you have like Ralph, the rat, the pet rat, and there's whole books around just centered around Ralph and the things that Ralph does. And it's not like a human watching Ralph. It's just from Ralph's, you know, Ralph is just <laughs> rat. Well He's living his life. Yeah. And he has a little motorcycle and, you know, he, he has adventures and he's scared of the cat and, you know, <laughs> and like, that's exactly how kids approach smaller things Mm. than them, whether it's like their toy soldiers or whatever. Um, and so kind of pre figures toy story a little bit, I think Mm. in, in that it's like, here's what they're doing when you're not paying attention. Um, Mm. but it's in prose and really, you know, simple, fun prose. Mm. So I think that was a lot of it. It's just very, it like syncs, it syncs up with what you're feeling at the moment as a kid. Mm. So did you grow up then in a house that was full of readers? You've mentioned there's a few people in your family that were readers. Like was books then just a huge part of your whole childhood? Yeah. So I wouldn't, both my parents read, but they weren't like big readers. Neither of them had gone to college. High school wasn't like a, you know, academic achievement wasn't like a part of my family, uh, my extended Mm. family's kind of culture at all. Um, very much kind of, you know, typical working class, mm-hmm. I guess, what mm-hmm. you would think of stereotypical. Um, and yet uh, my parents were, you know, certainly saw that I loved to read, wanted to encourage reading. They've always been like very, that was very important to them that I would read. And I loved reading luckily. And then my brother, I think learned to read even younger than I did. Mm. Um, he like, he didn't really talk until he was like three. And then he was reading like, you know, month, a couple months later, he's super bright. So between the two of us, we were always reading. And then when we, uh, so my brother was homeschooled from the beginning until the 10th grade. Mm. And um, my parents, this is in the nineties. So the homeschool curriculums are kind of, there's less of them. Fewer <laughs> yeah. of them, sorry. Yeah, things, um, things are a little different in twenty. 20- they were very, or yeah, exactly. But back then, you know, there was sort of like a Becca and Bob Jones, or there was like sunlight curriculum, which yeah, was, yeah. you know, and it, uh, sunlight only went up to the eighth grade back then, as far as I remember. And I started being homeschooled in the sixth grade, but my mom decided on sunlight for some reason, I don't even know for my brother. And so I would read all the books that they use in their, their system. If you don't know, which I think a lot of people do is like teaching history, in particular and, and sort of culture and things like that through a lot of kind of historical fiction or mm-hmm. nonfiction that's very engaging to read. So it's sort of teaching you that like books are good and interesting and yeah, not just yeah. textbooks. Um, yeah, yeah. 
So I would read everything. I mean, I read everything in the house. I just, and we would go to the library and I would read it, like literally read out, you know, the children's section <laughs> and then moved my way up. And, um, and we didn't really watch TV. I mean, we watched like some PBS shows, but that was about it. Um, we didn't, mm-hmm. I never had cable or anything. Um, we didn't, you know, it was like too early to really have video games. We just didn't have any, any of that stuff. Um, and so yeah. reading was what we did. Um, so yeah, I mean, I read everywhere. I always had a book with me in the car or at the table. And, you know, when, when dad was out of town for work, mom would be, you know, okay, we can have a reading dinner. And then everybody got to bring their book to the table (laughs) and read during dinner. Um, yeah, I mean, we read voraciously and constantly, uh, at the same time, like (laughs) it's nineties homeschooling. There were a lot of people who would tell you how none of the books out there were like fit to be read by Um, young Christians in particular. And so I I read a lot of the same books over and over. And I read a lot of stuff from like the 19th century. (laughs) As far as I remember. Um, Yeah. A lot of little women, like five times. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, at least. Yeah. Little women. (laughs) Um, I've read every single book that Louise May Alcott wrote that is in print. Um, Same with like um, uh, Anne of Green Gables. Mm -hmm. and, And although she wrote... She wrote some books that probably were really not appropriate, uh, given the standards <laughs> that we had at the time. But, you know, if nobody knows, then you just read them and then then they're there. And um, you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. These are like definitely for grownups. Um, <laughs> so but, do uh, any of these books, like do those, those what some people might say, like classics or authors, books by authors who wrote a classic, like Little Women, have those stuck with you too? I mean, are those things you return to? Um. I think about them a lot. I sort of forgot about them for a while, you know, mm-hmm. cause I, I graduated from high school when I was, or I, f- I finished high school when I was 16 and kind of had to like a gap ish year and then started mm-hmm. college. And in college I was in a, a very much a STEM school and a very much a STEM program and uh, mm-hmm. reading just like, wasn't a thing you ever did. Um, mm-hmm. Cause basically I didn't have time. I was always, you know, coding or, solving math equations or whatever. And, um, and then you kind of grow up and get a job. And I just sort of like forgot about some of them, but now, um, in my work, I'm, you know, constantly talking to colleagues who sometimes have very fond memories of the same books because they had the same experience. And Mm. so, you know, like I was talking to someone recently and they were like, what were those books with the you know, they were by Ellen Montgomery who wrote Anne of Green Gables and they were with a group of kids and they were like maybe teenagers and they all had like a different talent. And I was like, oh, the story girl. <laughs> and we had just like forgotten about these entirely. And it's probably because we're not Canadian and we didn't watch all of the shows that were oh, based yeah. on Montgomery's books. <laughs> yeah. But um, I was yeah. like, oh, I want to go back and read those because they were really fun. Or when Little Women was coming out, the movie was coming out a few years ago, the mm-hmm. really great Greta Gerwig um, adaptation. I was like, oh, well, you know, in Little Men, like this thing. And people are like, Little Men, what are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, no, I mean, there's like many there's books whole series, about yeah. these characters. Joe's yeah. Boys and yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's like four books. And technically what we call Little Women is actually two books. And I, and people, you know, get mm. tired of of hearing that kind of stuff. But I think about them fairly regularly at this point because of... Mm. Uh, and I've also wondered you know, why, I guess I know why the Montgomery books don't get adapted more often because the, the estate has some rights to them, but, um, Mm. but like, why is it always little women? Alcott wrote a lot of other books. I'd like to see some of them get adapted. 
Um, there's a whole cinematic universe just waving. There. <laughs> yeah, just put Greta Gerwig on all of them. Yeah, please. Um, so I want to talk about food writing mm-hmm. um, in particular, since that's large. You know, one of the big things that this book is is about. Yes. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question that um, just popped into my head talking about Little Women and Greta Gerwig. Yeah. When you're writing about culture and you're writing about movies or television or whatever, and and you've been writing about movies now for a long time. Yeah. When you write about seniors, yeah. Well, when you write about a um a movie that has been adapted, yeah. You know, owning a bookstore, I have these conversations constantly with people I'm who are sure. like, I don't know, the book's just better, or yep. I don't even want them to make a movie about that book. I love the book too much, or I'll never watch it, or you know, all these kinds of opinions. Some yeah. of which I sometimes share and sometimes don't. Um, do you? Ha- how much time do you have to spend thinking about? the little women book and the idea that this is an adaptation of something else yeah or are you trying to just focus on this distinctive art form that is the movie yeah. and i'm just going to focus on that and i'm not going to yeah. the book aside. so i've kind of evolved in my thinking on this over time i, I mean so um Andre Bazin, the film theorist of the french new wave wrote mm-hmm. about this forever ago and sort of said like these are different works of art or different um, mediums, you know, film and books or film mm-hmm. and theater, because a lot of early movies were just uh, theater put onto film, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so he thought about it a lot and said, like, you know, if it doesn't work, it should work in a vacuum as a film, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't work as a film, then even if it's really faithful to the book, it's not a good film because film has its own logic and it's a visual medium Mm -hmm. and books are not visual mediums. And so, you know, there's differences there. Um, so I do believe that. And I, I hold to that and like, I don't care if the book faithfully uh, is adapted into a film. Like if it doesn't work as a film, if it's clunky or overly explanatory or whatever, then it's not a good movie. Um, right. You know, even if the fans like it, I don't, it doesn't matter. Um, but at the same time, I think, so probably like half the movies I see that are adapted from books, I just don't have time to read the book beforehand. So I don't have any yeah, idea. Yeah. Um, and I think that's totally fine. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, I should, as a film critic in particular, I should be able to judge the, the you know, whether it's any good without having read the book. Those are not related. It's the same source material. That's it. On the other hand, um, I do try to read the book, especially when, so like the one that pops into my head is I spent all of last summer reading Dune. Um, oh, yeah. the first yeah. book, uh, which I hated. <laughs> I was like <laughs> so bored. The book was awful. I loved the movie. Yeah. The book was so boring and so <laughs> pres- like pretentious. So did you, why'd you read it then? Well, cause I knew that this was a specifically a book that had, uh, very much struggled to get to the screen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, yeah. there's like a really, really terrible David Lynch adaptation. And <laughs> yeah, then yeah. there's, you know, all this lore around Jodorowsky's version. And so I knew that, and I felt like in order to understand if this is successful, <laughs> I need to at least acquaint myself with like, why was this so hard to yeah, get yeah. on screen? And I understood after. And I, I guess it, it was such a big cultural artifact yes it'd be like not reading the lord of the rings or something when those movies were coming out exactly exactly um and then you know and then i went and saw the movie and i was like oh this is incredible (laughs) this is like really good and the reason it's good has a lot to do with the choices that were made in adapting the book and i Mm. feel very much the same way about uh greta's uh little women in that like she she actually manages to do something with the text 
that is totally faithful to the spirit of the text, but is very much its own thing and kind mm-hmm. of captures captures the gist of the book in a way that I I dearly love the 94 version too. And I think it's a great movie, um, but it doesn't capture the the feeling of the book, which is of uh, kind of like a nostalgia you know, uh, your rosy mm. remembrances of your youth that when you get older, the world seems like the c- kind of the light's gone out in it a little mm. bit. And she completely captures that visually, mm. thematically, narratively, the whole thing. Um, and I thought that was incredible. Um, would I have had a different experience with it if I hadn't read the book? Maybe, <laughs> I don't know, but that's, that's everything about film criticism. You know, you, you can only say, you can't give an objective opinion that that's like a false thing that doesn't exist. You can only speak from your own experience. Have you ever watched a movie and then, you know, maybe it was about, it was an adaptation of like a lesser known book or something, or maybe not lesser known, but just something you'd never read before. And then you like, I have to read this book. Like for example, when wildlife came out a couple of years ago, the Paul Dana movie starring Carrie Mulligan. Yeah. I was like, I have to read this book. So I, then I read the Richard yeah. Ford novel. I was yes. like, okay, I can see why someone would want to. Yes. Like, this would be meaningful to somebody. Yeah, I did that with Revolutionary Road back in the day, mm. the Richard Yates novel, which is a tremendous book. Uh, really kind of a stunner um, and way ahead of its time and just depressing mm. as all get out. <laughs> um, and the movie is too. Um, but the movie is a really good adaptation of that. I also... Um, I did this with The Price of Salt, which is sort of the novella Mm. that Carol is based on. Um, But I kind of knew what I was going to get because it's Patricia Highsmith. Um, But it was fun to see how Todd Haynes and and, um, screenwriter, whose name is escaping me, had adapted some aspects of the book to be more suited for a visual storytelling medium. And then most recently, I did it for The Lost Daughter, which oh, yeah. is Maggie Gyllenhaal's incredible adaptation of an Ellen uh, Ferrante novella. Basically, it's a very, very short novel. I think mm-hmm. it's like a hundred pages long. Um, and I saw it and then I read it and then I saw it again. And in that way, I could see some of the things that they had done again to adapt it f- for the screen. And also because the original is written in Italian. I mean, I read it in translation, but it's written in Italian. It's very much like an Italian story and they yeah. had to mess with it to have um, British characters the main mm. character. So, um, mm. yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a very writing focused critic. I'm, I'm like really always thinking about like themes and symbols and like recurring patterns mm. in the writing. I don't really know all the nuances of acting or like editing or whatever, but I really am always very into like how the screenplay and then the director's take on the screenplay is creating whatever it's creating. Mm, um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so the book is always in my head. Too. Well, so food writing in one second, I want to follow up yeah. on that. Yeah. So th- those are, those are, those are elements of storytelling, e- you know, even in non-visual mediums. Yes. So are you looking for the way, well, I guess you'd have to have read the book to, to find this also in, in, in a movie, but when you've read both, are you looking for ways that, that the movie through its adaptation mirrors using the form of movie cinema mirrors the same motifs and themes and symbols and images and things like that, that might show up in the book or you do not, if they don't mirror those same things, are you 
Does that not bother you? Like no, the, I don't know why it should bother me. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Like I, just because the book, it, I run into this sometimes. I feel like there's this idea that because a book exists and people like it, that we have to preserve everything about it. And it's the best possible mm-hmm. version of that story. And like, I don't even think the writers of books think that, you know, like they, yeah. rarely does the writer of a book actually get to be involved with the screenplay writing of their film adaptation, but when they are, they usually mess with it a bunch, you know, and there's this idea that like the book is like the sacred scripture. And then if you're going to adapt it, it has to be, you know, close to it or whatever. And like, sometimes that's just not true. Sometimes it totally is. The one that springs to mind is the wrinkle in time adaptation um, (laughs) that Disney put out a few years ago, you know, which is like a, serviceable film on its own but having read the book i was really disappointed that disney Mm -hmm. did the disney thing and stripped out some of the like danger and weirdness because they're just convinced that kids can't handle it um Mm. and they did the same thing with the narnia well i guess that anyhow they became disney movies um yeah they uh you know they did the same thing with narnia um and that disappoints me because i feel like that is fundamental to the book um, and in both of those cases, they're kind of religious allegories, which I think is an additional layer there. Yeah. But generally, like, yeah. you know, again, you can have a movie with no story and no sound, but, you know, with only images, but you can't mm-hmm. have a movie with no images. So image is the first thing and the only thing really that truly matters in film. And it's just the opposite with books. Like you've got to have a plot of some kind, <laughs> you know, you've got to have mm-hmm. words. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so that means that you might translate those themes differently. Yeah. And like, that's great. I think that's, that is um, what art does really well when it's sort of shifting the same stories into different forms over time. And mm. I don't remember who it is that says there's only eight stories in the world, <laughs> but you know, that we yeah, are yeah. basically retelling the same stories over and over in different forms. Um, and there's no reason that a book should have to be like slavishly devoted to, or the movie should have to be devoted to the book in that way. And it often, it comes off bad because it feels like a movie of a book. It's it's like if you yeah. just filmed a play and then act like, acted like that was a movie. It's like, no, that's a play on film, you know? So um, yeah. yeah. The other, it's interesting to me how people who are like, I mean, I'm a, I own a bookstore. I'm somehow snobbish about books, but it's interesting how people who are, just to use the term snobbish about books, get up in arms about movies that make choices, but then books regularly are retelling other stories. Exactly. And they make the same choices. Like Don Winslow has this new book. He's a crime writer. It's called City Uh on Fire. It's basically a retelling of the Iliad through New England gangsters. Yeah. And he, you can tell if you know the story of the Iliad. Okay. He, this is, this is Hector. This is Achilles. This is Achilles dragging Hector in the streets and so forth. But then he makes these other changes that the purists if they were, if someone was making a movie of the Iliad, they'd be like, what the heck, man? Yes. <laughs> but yeah. then when the book does it, you know. Right. I mean, I get, I get frustrated when I feel like it's gotten the source material wrong. Like it's not in the details, like the but in of its it? core. Yeah, yeah. Like what it is, what it is a story about. Yeah. Um, but I don't know why people have this idea that we have to perfectly adapt you know, something from a book to a screen, like they're just, we're talking, it's apples and oranges. Um, and it would be, it, it almost is always unsuccessful when people make a perfectly Mm. faithful adaptation of something. Well, let's talk about food writing because 
obviously that's something that's salty is yes. I got it right here. Yes. And I really enjoyed it. Is um preoccupied with, if you will. Yes. Um, when did you first discover food writing as a genre of literature that you loved? I, and then maybe what books were the entryway into that? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I would I I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> um <laughs> I and this actually feels like just as if it's in my head because of what we've just been talking about. But um, I remember, no joke, the Anne of Green Gables and the Little House on the Prairie cookbooks being the first cookbooks I oh, owned. Yeah. Um, and I loved them. Still because, very popular. <laughs> yeah. And I loved, I bet, um, I love them because it was the food from the stories. And I don't even know that I really cooked anything out of any of them, but it was like fun to see, okay, well, you know, Ma brings Pa, you know, a cup of, sorrel lemonade or whatever like what the heck is sorrel <laughs> lemonade and here's the recipe um yeah. so that idea was interesting and i think i've always kind of liked a writer who could evoke the active eating or making food in some clear way mm. and actually it, speaking of little house on the prairie books one thing that is you know, there's, there's stuff about them that I look back and sort of cock an eyebrow at, but one thing that they're sure. really good at is evoking, um, meals. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because her memory of her childhood is basically like trying to eat, you know, like yeah, basically yeah. trying to have Food enough was to special. eat, not having enough to eat. Yeah. Having like an orange be like the most incredible thing you've ever encountered, like ribbon candy, right? Like all yeah, of these yeah. little things. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's one reason why they're so appealing to the children too, because when you're mm -hmm. a kid, like what, what food or treat you're going to have to eat is like really exciting to you. And it might be the yeah. highlight of your day. Um, <laughs> yeah. and we have so many memories tied up with them, but I just think it's funny when she looks back at her childhood, like she thinks primarily about food. Um, so that's kind of where it started, sure. I think. Um, but then when I moved to New York, for whatever reason, well, it was because I moved to New York. You know, we had, there's incredible restaurants. I got really interested in the farmers markets nearby and sort of like cooking. I read about this a little bit in the book, but I had a friend, I had a small group of friends, one of whom I eventually married. Um, but we used to get together, you know, two or three times a week because we were just that's kind of we all live near one another. And um, one of them had gone to culinary school was not what her job was, but she had gone to culinary school and she used to cook for us and she'd just like throw together a meal with whatever was around. And I thought that was kind of incredible. Yeah. And my roommate had lived in Europe for years before she moved back to New York. And so she was really into like good cheeses and just like going to the little shop on Bleecker street and getting what you needed that night. So it was just like a totally different way of living. Mm. Um, and I kind of fell in love with it and started reading cookbooks um, and I, I don't remember what they were, but there were a lot of them and, um, yeah. and, and sort of got interested in the genre of food writing. And from there I started reading, um, memoirs and novels about food and the rest is kind of history, I guess. I don't think of myself as a food writer, but I do like to practice food writing and read it. Yeah. So do you have like a, um, okay, let, let me ask it this way. If somebody is interested in cookbooks you know there's so many there's so many cooking shows now you can get a gazillion sub stacks of really mm -hmm. interesting chefs and cooks and things like that and they like that kind of thing mm -hmm. but they're interested in digging deeper into some of these the great 
classics of food writing, yeah. what would you say is like a good starter kit or like yeah. a Mount Rushmore of say three or four books Oh yeah, that people should turn to? Well, the number one is um, The Supper of the Lamb by Robert mm. Farrer Capon, which is a classic of food writing, such a classic that Ruth Reichel put it into the modern food library um, mm. collection. Uh, there's a chapter right near the beginning where he talks about how to cut an onion (laughs) and it's like a whole chapter. And it's, I mean, it is a classic of food writing in the English language. So it's also just a delightful book. Like he was the Episcopal priest. Um, He died a few years ago and it is kind of a theological book, but you would never read it and think like, Oh, it's a book of theology. He tells you, he's going to teach you how to make a lamb for six people, four ways or four people, six ways. I can never remember. Um, (laughs) But then he keeps getting distracted and he, he goes off into these rhapsodies. It's wonderful. You won't learn how to cook a single thing from it, but you will enjoy reading it immensely. Um, So that's one that I love. Uh, Another one is, um, well, Kind of anything by MFK Fisher is worth reading. Um, American food writer who lived abroad for many years, in mostly in France. Um, the one that people tend to read is called How to Eat a Wolf or How to Cook a Wolf. One of the two. Yeah, one of the two. I can never remember either. Something with a wolf. There aren't that many food books with wolf in yeah, the title. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it was sort of... Um, intended for lean times and it was sort of like how to use every piece of the animal but her writing is really full of very sparkling stories she was a neat lady she's had like a very full life Mm. um it is cook yeah and i would totally recommend that um and there's a book called an everlasting meal by tamar Mm. adler who is you know uh contemporary she's she's just she has another book coming soon um but she she wrote this book to kind of do the same thing but she sort of starts with a pot of beans you know and just sort of talks about like how you can cook it sounds really boring how you can cook a pot of beans on sunday and then (laughs) use them all week but she does it in this really poetic kind of way that's just fun to read um and then one book that i talk about in my book is Edna Lewis's book, A Taste of Country Cooking, Mm -hmm. which is her second cookbook. And uh, I won't tell you the whole story of Edna Lewis, but she is... Yeah, you have to read Salty. You have to read Salty. But she is basically responsible for Southern food becoming the American cuisine. I don't know how... Like introducing the rest of the country and the world to Southern food. And because in the mid-20th century, basically it was considered a regional cuisine that you really didn't want to, it was, you know, wasn't, wasn't worth engaging with. It, it was just like fried know, food. It's just fried food. And, you know, oh, it's like poor people eating it or whatever. There's kind of like some racial stuff mixed yeah. in there. Um, and she, as a black woman who grew up in Virginia and moved to New York in adulthood, managed to create its iconic status. Hmm. Um, and uh, she wrote four cookbooks but a taste of country cooking is partly kind of a memoir of her growing up years in Freetown, Virginia, which is where, which is a town that her grandfather who was uh, formerly enslaved and another man and their family started. Hmm. um, And they called it Freetown because they were free. And uh, she grew up there and the, I read about this in the book, but she's, it's, it's a really interesting book because mixed up with her memories are some like very subtle but somewhat barbed sort of um, rebuttals to conceptions that her readers would have had about Southern black people Mm -hmm. in particular, Um, but not Mm -hmm. entirely. 
you know, it's just, it reads very gently, but if you kind of read between yeah. the lines, you can get some really interesting historical nuggets out of it. Um, mm-hmm. So she was just fascinating. That cookbook is a classic by any measure. Um, and I totally, I totally recommend it. And then one last one, which I also write about in my book is Elizabeth David's book, um, uh, a book of Mediterranean food, which uh, she wrote under very dire circumstances in post-war England when Mediterranean mm. food was like the last thing she could get, but she was writing her memories of things that she had eaten uh, during the seven or eight years she'd lived in the Mediterranean. And it's a real delight to read. New York Review Books has just started republishing her work. Um, but you can, you know, are you going to go out and cook a baby goat? Like probably not, but reading about it can be really refreshing and kind of well, it's kind of like nature writing or travel writing. Like I'm yes. not going to most of the places that Barry Lopez writes about, I'm never going to get to go to. Exactly. Exactly. But, but you're, you're kind of experiencing something through the writing. Um, even if you're just like eating, you know, potato chips while you're doing so, it. Well, okay. So you mentioned the goat and so forth. So when you, uh, when you were working on this book, you, well, so for people who don't know in this book, there are, there's a recipe that goes along yes. with each of these figures that you write about. Yes. How did you decide which <laughs> recipes of the many that each of these figures were either famous for or loved personally, did you choose to include? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, someone asked me this recently and I was like, I don't really know. Um, I, <laughs> what happened was I, I, I would write, uh, so, okay. So I wrote this during the pandemic. I started in September, 2020 and I handed it in Memorial day, 2021. Okay. So I wrote a chapter a month and I would earmark a weekend to write the draft. And what would happen is I'd, you know, I'd write the draft and I'd get to the end of the draft. And I'm really excited that I've you know written my five or 6,000 word chapter. And then I was I sort of just like felt it out and wondered like, what makes the most sense having hit the end of this? What's, what's kind mm. of the thing that she wants me to include, <laughs> mm. uh, which sounds kind of woo woo and strange, but it, it is how it went down. And so, that makes you know, sense. yeah, for some of them, it was kind of, I, what I didn't want to do was offer their recipe, um, partly because of copyright <laughs> and sure, partly sure. because, um, like you should go look at their cookbook if you want Edna Lewis's biscuit recipe. But what I could offer, and because the book is very personally inflected and there's there's bits of personal writing in the middle of it, I wanted to offer stuff that was my spin or like things yeah. that I eat or have Makes eaten. Sense, yeah. yeah, so the first chapter I wrote is, uh, I think sort of near the end of the book, but it's uh, the chapter on Hannah Arendt. Uh, mm. And I got to the end and the only appropriate thing to offer was a martini recipe, which I recognize <laughs> like not everybody's even going to ever make, but it felt yeah. like the only correct thing for that chapter for reasons that will become clear once you read it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, yeah, so I just wrote my recipe for my favorite martini. I don't know if she liked a Gibson, which is a gin martini, a dry gin martini with a pickled onion in it. I don't know if she liked those. Yeah. I know she drank martinis. Um, so I just, but it's mine. It's the one that yeah. I like. So yeah. I put it in there and it made sense in that context. Well, um, I think a yeah. lot of the great food writing to your point earlier, this is a book that's like about food people yes. somewhat. And then it's, but it's and not also only not food about, people. Yeah. yeah. But then it, because it's very, you know, the best food writing has a, and the best travel writing and so forth has a personal 
yes aspect to it you know right. there's, a, there's a memoir aspect to it yes so when you're working on this book did you did you ever did you feel like you had to in certain parts you had to like emphasize the memoir aspect of it you know emphasize your experiences and sometimes you had to say eh, let's scale this back let's focus this chapter more on edna lewis or whatever is that like a equation yeah. that you were thinking about yeah i mean uh, I I knew I didn't want it to read like a memoir. <laughs> um, yeah. Also, it wasn't really written as like a, there's no like, one, I mean, there is a unifying theme, but there's no one story running through it. It's very much yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. essays. You can read them next to each other. And I didn't, I wrote the chapters out of order. Um, so I think, you know, for me, it was sort of where do I, where do, this is kind of what I teach my writing students. Where does the inclusion of my story, like, where is it justified or where is it doing narrative work or where is it, you know, can I justify putting myself here or should I take myself out? So, you know, there's a, in the Elizabeth David chapter, I just, everything I wrote about her, I kept coming back to the fact that we were, I wrote it in January, 2021 and it's like gray Mm. and gross and bleak anyhow. And then on top of it, it was like a really weird time. And Um, It felt very like the limbo that she was living in when she started writing her book, which was the winter uh, in England, post-war austerity measures, like rationing, all of that's still on, but the war's over. So they're in just like this very odd time. And um, so a little bit of myself landed in there or when I was writing about Edna Lewis, right at the time that I was writing about her, the restaurant that she cooked at, um, Gage and Tolner, which had been closed for years and years, reopened. And it's quite mm. near where I live. And so I started thinking about her. Yeah. And I started <laughs> thinking about her and I found out that she always shopped at the Union Square Green Market. And like I've shopped there, you know, many times over the last 17, 18 years that I've lived here. So so I felt something like a connection <laughs> and it made sense for myself to appear in there. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And also, you know, I structured the book as me convening a dinner party of women I found interesting. I sort of had that that dream dinner party exercise yeah. that you do in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Um anyone dead or alive in this case they're all dead. Uh and so it's me like I'm the reason all these there's yeah. no other reason these women are in the book. They didn't yeah. know each other, yeah. you know. Um right. and uh and so I have to be there, but I have to I find people sometimes tip way over into like assuming that their story is interesting to you when you did not pick up the book to read their story. It's not a memoir. Um, so I try to try to balance that out. Did did you, um, and the publisher, which is broadly, yeah, broadly, did you have to, or did you have discussions about like, where would this book go in the bookstore? For example, (laughs) I don't think my, I mean, my, you know, with respect to my editors, I don't think they really knew what I was writing. I'm not sure I knew what I was writing until I turned <laughs> in the manuscript. Yeah. Um, so no, although I think the right place to file it is actually women's history. You know, if we were filing it in a library, I think in a bookstore, it just goes near food because it, it is about that. But like, yeah. you know, Octavia Butler is not a famous chef. Right. She's a famous fantasy writer. And like Hannah right. Arendt is not like a kitchen yeah. queen or anything like that. Maya Angelou did write two cookbooks, which seems to surprise everyone, but but she's not a cookbook writer. Nobody thinks of her that way. Right. You know, and Lori Colin right. is and a novelist. She Maya Angelou could write anything. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Oh yeah. Completely. I read so much of her writing when I was working on that chapter. And it's just like, you are an impressive lady, <laughs> which I <laughs> yeah. knew, but like Yeah. Um, when you really and, spend time in, with really great writers, it's just like <laughs> the, why, these these people were like almost like a different 
from a, they could be from a different planet and it wouldn't be surprising me, right? Like completely. And so, you know, for me it is a women's history book, but through the lens of culinary arts. And I'm not mm-hmm. the only person who's written anything like that. There's a great book um called What She Ate. Uh, I think that's, yeah, by Laura Shapiro. And it is a book that tells the story of six different women, including like Eleanor Roosevelt and like Hitler's favorite mistress and like some different women who were kind of around or caused really important points in history. And she does it completely through uh, deep historical research into the things that they were eating um, and what they liked to eat and, and what they talked about or made or whatever. Um, there's um, there's other books like this I, I, that are out there. Um, Maya Xen wrote one recently called Tastemakers that's about seven um, <clears throat> immigrant women uh, f- who who changed like food in America. Um, so there's a lot you can do with women's history through food. I'm sure you can do this with, with history of all people, not just women, but because of the historical place of women in the kind of food ways, the making and the eating and Mm. the creating and the innovating. Um, it's just like an extra special and fun lens into their lives. And also like everybody likes food. If I told you, I wrote a book about nine women, who I found interesting. That's not a book, <laughs> but <laughs> right, yeah. Nine women who are interesting through the lens of food becomes a book. Mm. So, okay. So I've got two more questions for yeah. you, and then, and then I'll let you go. Um, was there a book that while you were that while you were writing this that you read that most surprised you at how great it was? And let's say maybe a book by one of these women Ooh. in the book, or yeah, you know. It could be surprised or that you were just like, this book is really good. And everyone that's reading my book should also read this book. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's a lot of them. I mean, I think A Taste of Country Cooking was definitely one of them. Um, That's the the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a chapter on Ella Baker, who was um, an uh, activist during the civil rights movement. Um, She was a counterpart to colleague of and sometimes kind of frenemy of Martin Luther King. Um, and I wrote about her because I thought she was interesting. Uh, she was an advocate for, for decentralized, um, activism. So she, she didn't really, she believed in asking individual communities what they needed and letting them kind of run the charge instead of coming in and telling them like, here's how you get your rights. So (laughs) she was just an interesting lady, but the books, um, the biographies of her are like great. I I was kind of, I read a lot of biographies um, and, and, uh, and they were really great. I name a couple of them in the book, but I think the one that's most interesting and illuminating is called, I believe Ella Baker and the black freedom movement. Um, And it's just a really good history of the time, which I think was, I'm pretty sure I was reading it during summer 2020. So I just felt like it was a really appropriate book to be reading, to give me kind of a history that was bigger than just the like Martin Luther King side of the story, which is an important side, but not the only side of the, of the story of the civil rights movement in America. Um, So that was really good. And then also there's a book that I um, write about a little bit in the Hannah Arendt chapter um, that I believe is called Hannah Arendt and the politics of friendship. I think that's what it's called. And it's clearly like probably started life as somebody's dissertation. <laughs> it's six chapters long. That's always the tell. Um, but it <laughs> is about Hannah Arendt, who, you know, many people know of 
if only kind of briefly as the person who wrote about the banality of evil and totalitarianism. But the book is an introduction to her thought through the lens of her most important friendships in her life, uh, one of whom was the American critic and writer Mary McCarthy, one of whom was Martin Heidegger, uh, with whom she had a long and very complicated history. Um, one of them was her husband. So it was interesting to read it and get a look in on her life that way. And I also like felt like I picked up a lot of her thought, which I, I had read a bunch of her beforehand, but I picked up a lot of her thought by reading this book. Um, so I, I, I would recommend it to people who are kind of interested in her, but maybe don't want to you know, tackle the origin of totalitarianism <laughs> or any of the extremely yeah. long biographies of her. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's by John Nixon and came out in 2015. It's a really fun read. And that's the, um, Hannah Arendt and her the politics of friendship. Politics yeah. of friendship. Yeah. It's a good title. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, you know, again, it was pretty clear that somebody must've started life as a dissertation, but it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very good. Um, okay. Last question, obviously over the last, as you mentioned earlier, over the last couple of years, the world has been a strange place and you yes. were working on this book during that period of time. Did you find yourself or, or have you throughout your life found yourself turning to particular books or authors during strange or difficult times? Like, I guess another way of asking this is, do you have like, um, a comfort food type book to mix our, mm. you know, our food and our book metaphors. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, sometimes when I ask that people think, I mean like junk food. So they just, no, and maybe, maybe it is, you read a mystery, but right. Like when, books for hard times, I guess is kind of what I'm thinking about. Here. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually have gone to kind of the MFK Fisher mm. route. Although I, I usually, I don't do a lot of rereading of books. I think it's because I always feel like there's so many that I'm supposed to be reading. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we only, have, we only have like yeah. <laughs> 1200 books that we're all ever going to read in our lives. right? Exactly. So, uh, you know, uh, but I, I will throw something like that into my rotation. Um, like a really good food book usually, usually fills that for me. Um, however, I will say in the process of writing this book, I read a lot of Lori Colwyn's novels. Um, she wrote two books on cooking called Home Cooking and More Home Cooking. Um, but she was known for writing in the 80s, these kind of like kind of aggressively middle brow novels about just ordinary people living their ordinary lives. Um, they're really hard to describe and make them sound appealing. Um, but I realized in the process of reading all of them that they would turn out to be comfort food type books because they're, they're simple. They're easy to read. The characters are very pretty much relatable. They're just like ordinary women um, who like have things going on in their lives. Um, and they're really fun to read. And I also discovered as I was writing this and doing research that a lot of people, particularly women my age who were kind of born in the 80s and thus missed Laurie Coleman the first time around, uh, have like little kind of culty fan groups for her <laughs> because she feels this for all of us. And, uh, and I, so I think I'll go back to them. They also all have like these really wonderful titles um, and they're, <laughs> they're just being reissued right now. Um, so you can, you can pick them up now, but they have titles like happy all the time or family happiness. And often the titles are drawn from like Dostoevsky or something, but then the book doesn't 
you know, there's nothing about it that feels like Dostoevsky, but you can see how that thinking kind of permeates the book. So I have really enjoyed those. Also, she writes short stories and I'm a big fan of short stories for hard times um, Mm. because you can't concentrate. (laughs) Since you just brought it up, who are some of your favorite short story writers? Um, I really love short story writers who also are novelists. Um, so Laurie Colwyn is one of them. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh gosh, this is always a hard question. Uh, uh, you know, everyone loves Lydia Davis, obviously. Um, I'm really into um, Laurie Moore is a big favorite of mine. Big, big favorite of mine. Um, I think just an incredible short story writers, but often I will pick up like a collection so that I'm getting a bunch of different writers yeah. um, and can kind of see their different sensibilities next to each other. Um, and there are many good ones out there. Talking to you just reminded me of this because last week I, ju- I read the new collection of stories by Jess Walter mm, yep. um, <laughs> called Angel of Rome. And yep. you, I, you, I guess what beautiful ruins came out in like 2012. Yeah, it's and, and I think y- you talking about it on social media or something back then was yeah. what prompted me to read it. And since then I've read it a couple of times and recommend it a lot. So. Such a good book. Oh my gosh. Although I, I read beautiful ruins, loved it. It's kind of about the movies. It's the only kind of book I've That's ever true. read about that, yeah. that I thought was really engaging and great. But um, then I went back and read the financial lives of the poets, which is his previous book. And like almost had a nervous breakdown reading it. Cause it's <laughs> about like a writer who, all his bills are coming due at once. And I was like, Oh boy. Okay. Well, (laughs) um, but yes, wonderful. Save this for when I'm rich. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When I, when I am not actively worrying about that all the time too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, Alyssa, thank you so much for coming on and talking about books and good luck with salty. Um, I really enjoyed it. And now I'm going to go back and look at those recipes again, uh, (laughs) with what you just were describing in mind. I was, you were mentioning, um, just now you were talking about was it Ella Baker and then so I was looking to see mm-hmm. which recipe because I was trying to remember which you had included and it was that shrimp salad yes so yep. she loved a shrimp salad uh and she ate it when she was burnt out so I think we all can yeah. enjoy that <laughs> <laughs> now I, again comfort foods comfort books help us get through the hard times right yes so, exactly well again thanks so much uh good luck with the book and I'll Thank talk you. to you soon all right thanks Well, that was Alyssa Wilkinson. Salty is available wherever books are sold right now. Please do order from your local bookshop, but if you would like to order from our shop, you can head over to bookshop.org slash shop slash Goldberry Books. Or of course, you can come on down to downtown Concord and check us out yourself. Well, this has been Bibliography. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you found a book or two to add to your to-be-read list. Until next time, happy reading.